Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So anybody says to me now, and I, I'm just not saying this for the cameras, you know, would you not prefer to be playing today, all that money? I couldn't have lasted mm. a season the way the, the pros have to perform, behave and act today. You know, um, in my day, if you went into a pub for a pint, the fans of the people in there would say, fair play to him. He's shown us that he's one of us. We'll have that. Now you can't wait to get that fella in trouble. Niall Quinn has been many things in his life. Teenage GAA star, Premier League chairman, businessman, administrator, even a racehorse owner. But for most of us, he remains Niall Quinn, the footballer, and more than that, the national hero. Niall, closing your autobiography, you said you only go around this world once and being a footballer is as good as the trip gets. The least we can do is wear a smile and say thanks. Do you remember when the kid growing up in, in Crumlin in the 1970s had an inkling <laughs> that he might become Niall Quinn, the footballer? No, because hurling was my first sport. I was from a strong GAA family. We lived in uh, Perrystown, which is a, a, a suburb of Crumlin, if there is such a thing, <laughs> a part of Crumlin. And uh, it was full of GAA men from the country and their families. And we carried a hurley around, whereas other kids were carrying a football around and knocking it around. And, and eventually, you know, when I was six years of age, the ban... Of, of soccer and GAA being, being allowed to play the same sport uh, was ended by the GAA. So my dad spent a year or two wondering whether he should let me play soccer or not. And I ended up doing the street leagues. That was my first foray into soccer, an under eights team. And uh, I got picked for Derby County. <laughs> and it was amazing. We went all the way to the final and won it. And our manager, Freddie Carr, uh, he was a, a lovely man. Um, always reminds me he was my first manager and he got me playing soccer. And then I went to Manortown United another year or so later. I was playing with Robert Emmett's all the time, hurling and football. And, and when I could squeeze in the soccer, mm. the football, I could, um, I could play then for Manortown. And so that's how it started. And then, uh, you know, by the time I hit 13, 14, 15, I went from being a goalkeeper at the start to playing outfield. Uh, Mr. Doyle was, was my, uh, my, my manager for, for Man of Town from, from when I was 9 to 12, but I was playing in the under-12s to the under-15s. And uh, when they went under-16, it was Sunday morning, couldn't play hurling. So I'd had to stop the hurling. I didn't want to do that. So I went back to my proper age group, and Kieran Flaherty, my manager, said, well, we're not putting you in goal, we're putting you out. You want to play outfield, and, and my life changed. The goalkeeping training will come in handy later on. We'll get to that in due course. Um, so, so you're in a, a GA mad household here. I want you to maybe paint a picture of, of the Quinn household. Your father, Billy, was uh, an All-Ireland minor winner with Tipperary in his day, a, a great budding hurler whose life didn't go that way and maybe didn't get to enjoy sure. the senior success. Um, what was life like around that sort of... GEA focus. You would never know my dad had any 
disappointment in his life, such was his love for hurling. And his disappointment was he, he won an All-Ireland medal as captain. And in those days, they gave the, the cups out together with the senior captain and the minor captain. And he received it with Christy Ring. And it was shown around the world. And uh, within a few months, as a young minor hurler, he made his Tipperary senior debut and scored three goals in the league final in 1954. And so he started to become the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the up-and-coming superstar. And within a year, he was on the uh, docks in uh, East London, um, decided that um, my mum and him had decided to go and try and make a living in, in the England in the 50s. Mm. And uh, he turned his back on it. And he came home some years later. My eldest sister was born in England. And he came home some years later and he, he you know, shacked up with Fogg's Hurling Club in Dublin. And without overdoing it and telling him how, how important Fogg's was in his life, um, when he passed away uh, almost five years ago now, he, he was, um, his coffin was draped with a Fogg's flag. And, and he, he had that, so that was part of our lives growing up. And Robert Emmett's was a kind of a feeder club to Foggs that I was playing in, the juvenile section. Foggs didn't have a juvenile section at the time. And um, if we weren't watching a Foggs match, we were watching the opposition. He'd throw us in the car to bring us somewhere. And then, when there was no matches on in Dublin, we were brought down to county finals in Cork, in Limerick, or in Clare. And uh, it was just a passion and a love that, that knew no bounds, you know. Mm. And... The thing about it was, there was hundreds like him. And so, you know, those of us who, who kind of wanted to play hurling and, and, you know, did our thing, we all hung around together. We the football lads and the hurling lads, but we'd go to the local, you know, disco, you know, and uh, the guys in the disco would all be going in there with all the right gear on and chatting up all the women. And we'd be outside using the, the gable <laughs> end of the disco with a tennis ball till they all came out. And then we'd try and pull the girls off them on the way home. <laughs> um, that, that was the kind of memory I have uh, of growing up. And, and then I kind of crossed over, you know. Um, I got picked for, out of nowhere. I was playing with Manortown under 14s. And uh, David O'Donoghue, who, who played with me, the, the two of us were... were probably the standout players on the team at the time. And we were asked to go on trial with the Dublin for the Kennedy Cup. Now, we were in... I think at the time 14C or B maybe so we weren't even in the A league and uh, we went and I got selected and by the time the Kennedy Cup came around I was made captain so my life was changing so the, the, the hurling was sort of yeah. making way for, for football and uh, I captained the Kennedy Cup team we won it uh, down in Cork it, it was great and then the next natural step from that was the under 15 schoolboy team and then glory um, but the problem was I didn't get picked for the under 15 schoolboy team I did get a trial for uh, Fulham uh, Malcolm McDonald was the manager, but very quickly after a week, he told me to stick to college. Um, and as I've said in my book, as you may have read, if you've done your notes um, as, as well as you normally do, uh, he said, as long as I have a, a hole in my backside, I'll never make a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> so part of the part in the book was when Arsenal signed me a couple of years later and I started playing in the first team wearing his old jersey, I wanted to... Uh, maybe send a letter to him and say, my, my arse had healed over, I'm fine now. You know? <laughs> Who are you more like, your father or your mother, I wonder? Because that enthusiasm for life and for, 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 the, for the sort of the buzz of those big occasions, like that comes through in your own story as the years go on as well. Were you more like your father or your mother? Uh, my mum was, was, was a school teacher. Uh, she's still going strong, 90 years of age, um, shortly. And uh, she's always been the exact same, you know, just as, as you would expect from a teacher, you know, be ready for everything you do, don't, you, know, you know, just... Don't take it all for granted, etc. But my dad never said a lot to me. And, and the, the one thing he did say to me, and I remember it as long as I can live, just don't do a Jack Doyle on it, mm. was, his, was his advice. And that was all he said to me going to England. And I was so lucky he didn't preach loads of things to me that that stuck in me. I actually made it my business to read about Jack Doyle. 
And shortly after I got to London, I got so enthused with the Jack Doyle story, I used to go and find the pubs that he drank in and also the back lane that he was found in, dead. And, I, and it very much struck me that there's, um, that there's this romantic version of a sports star's life who leaves Ireland to go and, and be great, whether it was in America back in the day for boxers or you know, what have you, uh, right away to footballers, etc. But when you peel it all back and see the, you know, the, the, the life of an elite sportsman and the highs that they hit and the lows that they mm. feel when they, when they go, no, I, I, I was better prepared than most, it still hit me. But, you know, it, 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 right now at the end of it all, when, when I look back and I go, it was the best advice I could have got because I was fond of a pint, I could drink, I was tall, I could drink more than other lads, I could hide it better. Um, and I did, but uh, I, I always knew when to pull back. Because, you had this voice at the back of your head. Yeah, and, I, and it all stemmed from, from my dad's last sort of, mm. well, only sort of few words to me before I left for England. Um, be before you got there, and, and you mentioned there you played in an All-Ireland uh, hurling final at the age of 16. Like, there's this, it, it reads like a, something from a sort of boy's own comic, like you wouldn't believe it, but you're playing in an All-Ireland hurling final at the age of 16 in, in, in 83. You're captaining a touring Gaelic football team to Australia, the first Irish team to do an Aussie Rules tour, if you like. You get the Fulham trial, you know, which obviously, okay, didn't work out well, but it's still, I mean, a, a life that's un, unimaginable for, for most boys that age. And there's a great line in your book where you say that it, it felt like every door you walked towards opened for you at that time. Yeah, wasn't it funny? Um, to get a day off school, I went and did the post office exam. For no other reason, because there was, at the time, bleak Ireland 80s, there was uh, 30, uh, P&T as it was called then, there was 30 postman jobs available. And the whole country were sitting. And so I think over a thousand people sat it. And somebody mentioned to me in class, oh yeah, you get the afternoon off school. I went, Jesus, put my name down for that. <laughs> and I went into town anyway, did this exam, heard no more about it, and got a letter to say I was accepted to be a junior postman. So... It was funny because it all happened around the same time. You know, Arsenal came in, I had offers from two Australian clubs uh, to go more back. More lucrative offers. Oh, more lucrative, yeah. Now, in them days, though, it really was the far side of the world. It was, it was a, a big ask for, for, for a young lad to want to do that over Arsenal. Mm. Um, but I still had, you know, a couple of lads from the Dublin County Board still in there. Hey, listen, junior postman, you know, it's a good job and then you can get, you know, you can, you can have your hurling career. So I had that kind of triangle of stuff going on. Um, but ultimately, you know, the fact that I had posters on my wall of Liam Brady and Frank Stapleton as a kid and not giving that a shot, um, you know, was, was the thing that was to make it was in my... You've got to do this. Yeah. When, when I moved over then to North London and started to live on my own, um, I'd say, you know, I'd be looking at leaving train and going, right, what time is the first race? I'd need to get to the bookies, you know? I, I was in that frame of mind and then that would end and I'd, I got a second life going for me then. You see, I got into the team at, at, at 19, uh, just after my 19th birthday and... Um, Suddenly, you know, people were recognising me. It was a really, really strange thing. I went from being nowhere near it. You know, I was, I was absolutely non the plume. No one would know known who I was. I was a nobody, you know. And uh, I was heading out to Port Vale on loan on a Thursday. Mm. And I got called back because of an injury. And then on the Friday, another player got injured. And suddenly I'm in the squad on the Saturday. They actually play me. And I score after 20 minutes. And I play for the rest of the season. You know, um, this is against Liverpool. Against Liverpool, yeah, and in, in my, who were unbeatable nearly at the time. And we went and bet them, and I scored against them. It was the first game shown live uh, in Europe from, from English league football ever. And having meant to be in Port Vale, where I wasn't sure of getting picked because they couldn't guarantee me a game, but it was the, the, the coaches at Arsenal thought it would be good for me. Lovely man, John Rudge, was manager of Port Vale at the time. Uh, he said, don't worry, we'll wait for you. And um, I ended up playing on the Saturday, scoring... And by the end of the week, I was getting fan mail from Iceland and 
Germany and places, people, you know, people who tuned in scored against, I mean, Liverpool were the great team of the time yeah. and you're a few years on from considering being a postman. Yeah. So, you know, were you pinching yourself and thinking, wow, I've arrived here? Well, yeah, it all happened so quick, you know. It, it, I didn't have time to think about it. I, I went in on Saturday thinking I was making up the numbers because my name was added to the team squad in pencil at the bottom, so everything else had been typed out. So I thought it was a million miles off, but it was nice to, to, to know it was there. But I'm heading to Port Vale on Monday. That was how I went into Highbury. And uh, then I got called into the team, and it was a bit of a shock, but uh, everything was going on around me, so I had to get ready. And I felt OK, but it was only when we went out for the warm-up. And as we were warming up, I found myself going, oh, my God, there's Lawrenson, <laughs> there's Rush, there's Hanson, oh, there's Ronnie Whelan, you know, like, and in the end, one last, come on, get yourself sorted. I went, oh, right, yeah, I better get the warm-up done, you know. And the first 10 minutes of that game, um, I think Steve Nichol hit me a clout. Uh, Mark Lawrenson, who I later got to know, you know, came in with a two-footer and completely... And I was kind of getting nowhere. And that's, I think, when, when the hurling kicked in because, you know, uh, Steve Nicol, uh, he, he, he was a, a Scottish Presbyterian, I think, or whatever he was saying, but he, 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 he kind of was a little bit variable, gave me a little bit of the vocals. And I, I gave it back to him, you know, which I'd never done that in my life. I knew would tell you even playing in Dublin. I went, and I, and I got out and 20 minutes later, I had scored, we were 2-0 up, and I was giving him the variables, you know. We went on to win the game 2-0. I went to a, a I, none of my family at the match didn't even know. My auntie and uncle didn't even know. Nobody knew I was going to be playing or anything like that. I didn't even need my tickets. Didn't need one ticket. Yeah. And the following week, we went to United. Ron Atkinson. They were miles clear. Hadn't lost a game. All I was on the run to Christmas. They were going to win the league. Ron Atkinson was gold toothpicks. The whole thing was going to work. We beat them as well, and I laid on the, the winner. Mm. So I had two weeks of it. One Liverpool at home uh, scored on my debut, and we won. Second week, Manchester United. Uh, uh, away, who hadn't been beaten, who were running away with the league, and we beat them as well. So there was a lot of noise around the time. I think we played QPR or somebody the following week, and I was like, oh, what's all this about? You know, these aren't very good. So um, there's only about 10,000 at the stadium. Uh, and then we played Spurs, the fourth match. So I really had, which was the big derby. So I was, I was thrust into it, and then suddenly people were recognising me coming off the tube, whatever. I still didn't have a car or anything like that. So, um, you know, it was... Uh, it was a very quick change because to be walking around London and having people honking their car at you is kind of, it's, it was embarrassing in one way. Um, but again, I, I would take it to the point of, I better not go too far now. You know, I, I kind of got to get it myself back, got a hold of myself. And, you know, because you can easily lose a run and many have, mm. you know, at that particular point because, um, you know, it, 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 it can end as quickly as it starts to build up for you. Um, and for 18 months, it was perfect because, you know, George Graham came then and I played every game for him. And it was only when he signed Alan Smith that my career suffered, that, that, that sort of rise that I had stopped. Um, and my contract was running out just before Alan came and George kept trying to get me to sign a new one, but I was always reading the papers. He was after Kerry Dixon. There was so many. There was a guy... Um, Another guy, Mowbray, I think, was another player. On. There were so many players that were coming that were coming out that he was meant to be after. Uh, that I, I was, I, know, I had no agent. This was me, just on my own, fear of God in me. But I, you know, I still didn't want to sign. But in the end, he brought me in, gave me an extra rise, and said I haven't had to sign anybody. You know, and I was delighted I signed. And two days later, he signed Alan Smith. So that would be George Graham's form. Um, and it was the first big marker in my life that you have to fight battles here. This isn't as pretty an existence as you think. And then for three years, I only ever played when Alan Smith was injured and never suspended. He got booked once in his career, I think, and he never got injured. We were so far up our own backsides at that time, being these Irish stars, when we came home to Ireland, that for my son's birthday card, I put best wishes Niall Quinn on it. <laughs> <laughs>
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So your lifestyle at Arsenal, certainly when, when Alan Smith comes and, and you're out of the team, it kind of reads like a bit of a something from a Shane McGowan song <laughs> in the sense of, you know, you were living hard, drinking and gambling was, was a big part of your life. You're a young man and you weren't necessarily playing football, so you didn't have that to keep you in um, at the nights. You become great friends with a lot of very famous names now, people like Paul Merson and Tony Adams, for example. Um, at the time, it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a story of, of you with Tony on a two or three day bender that ends up in a confrontation with Vinnie Jones yeah. in a dressing room that, you <laughs> yes, know, yeah. I guess for you at the time, these, these were fun times. Oh, absolutely. And I had two lives. I had my football life, and by that I mean two social lives. A football social life with, with Paul, Tony and the other players. You know, we had a famously, I think it was called the Tuesday Club that used to go out on a Tuesday afternoon and, uh, We'd have Wednesday off if there was no midweek game. George would run us ragged up and down the terraces at Highbury. You'd come in shaking, but then you'd all have a good bit of water. Say, OK, come on, let's all get down to King's Cross and we'll start there and we'll see. And that was a footballer's life. And we go to the wine bar, the yuppie wine bars of the 80s. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, when they were all falling home at 6, 7 o'clock, I was only really getting going. I'd then go back to my mates who were back from work. We'd go to the Dog and Duck and Winchmore Hill and we would... At best, we'd stay there all night and, and drink in an Irish setting. Um, or we'd go up to, to one of the, the, the halls that would house the bigger Irish music bands. Um, done them all, you know, the Galtimore, the National, the, just the, the Gresham, just the amount of th- things that I used to get up to away from Arsenal that nobody at Arsenal even knew about. Because I can guarantee you, there was definitely no paparazzi at the Galtimore. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't lose the run of myself. I just went, I, you know, I, I'd always kind of wait as, as, as the week got went on I'd know by Thursday Friday where I was and I was playing in the reserves um, we were winning the league the reserve we were too good you know to, to, to be playing at league you might have one or two tough games a year um, but you know you're going to win five or six nil you know the, the first team left on a Friday morning they've gone up to Newcastle and you're not going to see them till Monday it's now you know Thursday afternoon you're playing a match on Saturday so you know what I'll, I'll go and have a few points tonight Friday no I'll, I'll cut it down I'll cut it I'll only have four or five tonight the next night you play in the reserves and you uh, and you win um, luckily when I went to get away I stayed in the night before the reserve game I stayed in for two nights and Howard Kendall came to it mm. and he came to watch me play in a reserve team friendly um, down in South London he came all the way from uh, Manchester where he was at Man City to watch me play he stood on the terrace on his own and, um, and that was the difference. Had I, I was very lucky, if I had been sort of out the night before and didn't play well in that game, you know, which was a nothing game, um, then maybe I wouldn't have got my move to Man City. So I'm not advising people to do yeah. as I do, but what I would say is I, I had a lot of luck and, and I, I feel very grateful. That it, I so it, it never felt that it was out of control at the time? I don't think so, no. I think once George Graham said to me in a, in a huddle as we were training one thing, um, you've got a smell of uh, beer on your breath. And all the players looked at me and froze. And, and I, had a, I had one second to answer. 
I just went, so would you, boss, if you had a, a, as much to drink as I did last night. And he started laughing, right? And so and everybody went, oh, thank God, when you thought you were going to get sacked there, you know? So that was the nearest, I think, yeah. I got to, um, to sort of being, being carpeted for it. Years later, when, when Tony Adams came out with, with his problems and... Did you feel um, a sense of guilt or any responsibility, or did you feel like you had played any part in that? Or like, how did you process that years well, it was, later? It's pre-mobile phone, so I wrote to Tony. You know, when 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 everything broke the way it did, um, and and there was a, we, we had a bit of a fallout over a book that he wrote afterwards, and he, uh, I believe anyway, the, the papers were the ones that were responsible. I, I thought he had done it at the time, where for the serialisation of it, they edged up the headlines, and you know, when Quinny and I on piss for three days, then we lifted the league trophy that night. Um, there was a two-week gap that he forgot about, mm. or, or the papers forgot about, and I had a little fallout over that one, and, and that lasted too long. That lasted 15 years. And it was only when I was finished playing and um, I was at Sunderland as a chairman and he was up with Portsmouth, and we sat together and we, we had a right good chat, and we've stayed in touch since, which is great. But, um, and Paul then was the same. You know, Paul, uh, we, we did everything. Anything that, that Paul was doing at that time, I was doing uh, in the early days. And... Um, He's someone I really, really admire. He, he, he's fighting. He'll tell you himself, it's the gambling um, gene that, that's really destroyed him and, and has caused all his problems in life. And he drinks to get over the gambling, etc. The, the, the cycle goes on. Don't need to preach about that now. And um, again, when, when, when I uh, got in touch with Paul's dad, when Paul's stories broke, uh, Paul's dad asked me never to have anything to do with him again. And um, that was kind of a a tough one for me to mm. take as if I was the blame. And, um, and so I backed off Paul for a number of years. But then as he came up to Middlesbrough and I met him once or twice when I was at Sunderland um, and then we got back again. So I'm glad that I got over myself on that one as well. And um, we'd all have probably done things a little bit differently, of course. Um, but the fun we had will never be taken from. So anybody says to me now, and I, I'm just not saying this for the cameras, you know, would you not prefer to be playing today all that money? I couldn't have lasted mm. a season the way the, the pros have to perform, behave and act today, you know. Um, in my day, if you went into a pub for a pint, the fans of the people in there would say, fair play to him. He's shown us that he's one of us. We'll have that. Now you can't wait to get that fella in trouble. Mm. It's a whole different psyche, you know. And that's, I'm not saying I was like, there was a magnet to the pubs because the fans were there. You, we weren't going chasing fans either, but there was something, um, there was something... As it, probably you mentioned it earlier, going back about the GA, there was something more about the team that we're all in together. There was no superstar. Agents hadn't kicked in at that point. Agents had only just be, started to come into vogue. And I think um, by the time I quit many years later, you know, the, the, the last bastion I had of, of what I would call a GA dressing room, type dressing room mm. in Sunderland was starting to fall apart uh, just because players were coming from overseas and with different mentalities, different styles. Better players in many ways, um, arguably not in Sunderland, but in, in, in general in terms of their ability and their fitness, but maybe lack the heart that we'd created with players not so good. So that was the changeover that I had gone through. I'd, I've seen the old days, the new days. I've seen the old League One as it was, the Premier League, uh, right the way through and, and what you would call the overseas explosion into it, uh, into the Premier League. And I witnessed all of it and the bit I got right in the middle was the perfect bit for me. That was the best bit for you, yeah. Um, you talked about a dressing room there in an environment where it's that sort of everybody pulling together. And I think when we look at your Irish, your time involved with the Irish team, for the most part anyway, I mean, that definitely comes through. Around the time that George Graham's coming into Arsenal, Jack Charlton is arriving in Ireland. And look, we all know what happened then. Um, different results for you long term. Yeah. Tell me your first impressions of Jack. Uh, uh, and... and yeah. 
and, and was it clear from the start, this man's going to change my life? Well, you see, again, no mobile phones then or emails and the club got in touch with me to say they've received a letter, you've been picked for the Irish squad, you've to report to the Dublin team hotel on May the 22nd. I was, Are you sure? It's not the under-21s. They went, no, it's definitely the senior squad. I went, oh my God, see, there was no teletext even to work out, you know, who was in the senior squad. You might get the English team somewhere on the radio, but you wouldn't get the Irish team. So I was thrilled at myself, rang home, you know, this was great. So we played our last game of the season. I drove my car home on the boat, uh, you know, got the boat over home and I was there for the summer, but I had this date for us with the Irish team for a few days, which was great. They were going to Iceland to play in a tournament. And I thought, wow, this is my big chance. Can't believe it. Jack Charlton has picked me. And I got to Dublin at the airport hotel and parked my car up. Um, I remember it clearly. I had a 12-year-old Ford Capri with go fast stripes, dice or something, and, and you know, and, and hanging out of the mirror. And I was... Um, bit full of myself, hair down to here, you know, had the Chris Waddle look <laughs> and um, moseyed on up anyway into, into reception and Jack was in reception, he was in a queue to, to be seen, I was in a, the, the other queue, I was kind of nodding over to him to say hello and the press guys, this is how, how it was in them days, there was no, you know, b uh, press backboards with sponsors' names on, the press just went up with old-fashioned dictaphones and literally were at Jack, that was four or five of them talking to him like that. And he's speaking to them as he's trying to check into the hotel. That was the press conference. And I was there sort of queuing up five yards away, kind of going, all right. And, and out of nowhere in front of everybody, he just went, Morris, we haven't picked him, have we? Have we? Oh, right, we better put up him then. And I froze right now. The press lads, everybody knew it was a joke except me. I was there going, oh, my God, <laughs> did the club get it wrong? Was, was it I on the under-21s? I knew yeah. I was on the under-21s. I'm after making a fool of myself here. And uh, in the end, he giggled and he said, go on, we're training at two, get yourself up to your room. And I went up. And then it kind of dawned on me, the lads came down and laughed at me, some of them said hello, and went, oh, I heard you got, yeah, you done you there. And I went, I'll, I'll show him. Yeah. And, and I went out training that afternoon and I kicked people like Frank Stapleton, who I'd normally have just been in awe of and wouldn't have been able to do anything. I kicked Mark Lawrence, I kicked them all, like, you know, and I was, I was running around like a lunatic. I'll show him, he'll remember me the next time, you know. And afterwards, you know, I went back in my room and went, God, he, he done me that. That was brilliant. He got me in such good yeah. fettle there. Like, it was amazing. And he did it in other ways to others. He did it to me then again at the end. Not, not quite at the end of, of his time, but, you know, at the end of my incubation period, if you like, uh, when I became a regular for him, it all started because I got in for the Holland game in 1990. And we'd played Egypt and played poorly. I, I got on for the last five minutes. I trained well for a couple of days afterwards. And... There was a bit of a rumour going around, you might get picked here, you know. I was going, no, don't be scared, there's no way he's going to pick me. And Dave and I were, were rooming together, he couldn't sleep the afternoon of the game. And he went down for a walk, and he came back about an hour and a half later, and he went to speak to some of the press lads, they think you were playing. And I went, oh, shut up, Dave, I'm not playing, he would have said something, you know. Mm. Anyway, we get in the bus, we do our thing, pre-match, go on the bus, get to the, get to the stadium, you know, in Palermo. Uh, he tells everyone to go out and walk around the pitch, you know. In them days, you didn't go two hours before, you went an hour, an hour and a quarter before. And uh, we're walking around the pitch, looking around, and nobody knows the team yet. And uh, he calls me over to one side, and, you know, I start to get... He went, so I want you to not do what you think you can do, just do what I want you to do. Mm. So because if you start running around like a headless chicken, I'll take you straight back off. So I said to him, am I playing? And he went, did I not tell you you were playing? <laughs> so, and he went, oh, I must have forgotten. I'm sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, no. You're playing, yeah. but you won't be if you start running around like a headless chicken. Lay it off, get to the far post, and when their midfield man gets it, your goal side, you make a five in midfield, which became fashionable 20 years later and people got coaching yeah. medals for it. Um, that was the thing. We want you, lay it, be not the first one, lay the ball off, get to the far post. If they get it, run back and make a fifth man in midfield. That's your job. If you do anything else, you're coming straight off. 
And he walked off and we all went in and he, he went in and I went, wow, I didn't have time to get nervous. I didn't have time to, to do anything. And suddenly I was playing and, and I scored in that match as well. And, and I played from every game I was fit for nearly or fully fit for uh, for the rest of his time. So in, in those two events, what he did to me both times, I know now looking back, he knew exactly what he was doing yeah. and he was trying to keep the pressure off me, but yet get the best out of me. And he did, and that's where... You know, when, when you look, people ask you, how did he do what he did and what were his tactical instructions and et cetera, et cetera. Like, was there, you know... I mean, there's a, a story about... the stories about doing the tactics on the back of a cigarette yeah. pack or, you know, video analysis, I imagine, wasn't a big part of it. Like, is, what was I, I swear to you now, right, we, we went into his room one time in the Dublin Airport Hotel. He had a big room and he brought us in. They'd got a video and they were putting it on the video channel. That'll tell you how long ago it was. <laughs> and after five or ten minutes... Three or four of the lads had farted and he got the hump and he threw us all out. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that, was our, that was another attempt at video analysis. Yeah. Um, but the one I think you're referring to is one, one that, you know, that I think any time we all meet up, we all, if you were part of it and you were there, you know, it was, was the one when he, he, he put on the video and it was the wrong video. Yeah. And Morris Setters, you know, put the room dark and Morris flicked the lights off and the video started and there was nobody at the match. I think it was Holland against one of the teams we were playing in the group. And uh, Jack was saying, now watch them. Watch, watch the way they play, watch the way they play, look at the way they, they, they go. And there was a bit of giggling going around, you could hear, like, there's no, this is, and, and Andy Townsend went, to, Jack, Jack, see under 21s, Jack, you've got the wrong, you've got the wrong video, mate, you know. <laughs> Jack went, huh? And he goes, Morris. And he goes, Morris. And he shouts at Morris, and Morris is fast asleep. And he roars at Morris, and Morris wakes up, you'll be sacked, you, I should be sacking you, get the lights on, all of you get out of here. So, so as we went to go out, we went, no, no, come back in, come back in. He went, uh, sit down. Said, uh, I was at the match in question and I've made some notes. I went, all right, so we sit down now and you know, you try not to laugh. You don't want to be caught laughing because he's now raging. And he took out the back of the fag packet and started folding it down. And then he went, I've done the two teams, one on the left, one on the right. And then he just went, ah, booger. Booger, booger, booger. Well, I haven't put which team is which. <laughs> and at this stage, we're, we're now, you know, you, can't, you laugh, you might never play. And he said, what will I do? I tell you what, he said, we'll do the team on the left and don't worry if it's not them tomorrow night because we're playing them next month. And, and at that stage, everybody started laughing and, um, and we somehow got through it and we, I think we won 2-0 the game, the game in question. So, so it sounds, yeah. you know, like Laurel and Hardy in one way, but you know quite well he was doing it to keep the whole thing right. And I think that's what made it so powerful and that's what made us all, you know, who were part of that dressing room in those days, it makes us all kind of turn around and go, weren't we lucky to be part of it? Because um, the fun was immeasurable. Um, we were being treated like gods. We were so far up our own backsides at that time, being these Irish stars, when we came home to Ireland, that for my son's birthday card, I put best wishes Niall Quinn on it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's, where we, that's where Jack brought us into, you know, the people in Ireland loved us and, you know, coming as soon as we landed at the airport, you know, it was just, you were being brought into Disneyland. Every one of us loved that pat on the back that we were getting continuously from taxi drivers, from other people in football. Um, we, we lapped it up. And there's no point in saying any, anything else. And in fact, if I was to say, you know, list what the great things were playing for Ireland, the pat on the back was, was, was just incredible because it was more than a pat on the back. It was you, we were welcomed into the lives of Irish people and we were mm. a part of it. Uh, and I can remember going up, uh, a friend of mine, Frankie Kilbride, um, famously got me a gig in, in, in the Caltimore of all places one night. Uh, I was queuing up after Wembley. We'd sco I'd scored against England and I was courting Gillian at the time and I was ringing her in Dublin. And while I was queuing up, because no mobiles in them days, uh, I got this 
tap on the shoulder for Frankie Kilbride. Uh, he said, um, I, I'm uh, an agent for country and western bands. There's a big do in the Galtimore. I'll give you a hand if you come down and sing one song with Cathy Durkin. So he said, there's 3,000 Irish fans there. He said, it'll be a 15-minute job. So, geez, I had no money in those days. You know, I did, we didn't have a lot of money. And a hand was 500 quid mm. cash. You'd have to earn about 800 to do that. That's like two weeks' wages for me. So I went, Jesus, so I can leave here. Jack has said goodbye to us. We're all able to do our own thing. So my mates were waiting for me, and I said, Guys, lads, we're going to the Galtimore. And I went on stage, and for my sins, um, I sang I Used to Love Her <laughs> by the Saw Doctors with Cathy Durkin in front of 3,000 mad uh, Irish fans. And anyway, it was pandemonium. But when it came to pay me, they handed, you know, Frankie handed me an envelope, and there was 450 quid in the envelope. So Jack... Fleming, who was with me, a great friend of mine, because um, I, I was training in Manchester the next morning. So it was now about two in the morning, half two, when I got paid. And uh, Jack says, that's out of order. He's after doing you. He promised you a hand. I'm not letting him away with it. He's, he's a cheeky... And after all you've done for the country, so Jack, leave it, leave it. So Jack wanted to stick him up against the wall. But in the end, anyway, we explained the situation. And he went... He said, I promise you a hand. And I remember going, yeah, but a hand's a hand. He went, but I didn't say whose hand. <laughs> so he had half a finger. He went, I talked my hand. And he gave me 450 quid. And I've been his friend ever since. <laughs> I suffered relegation for the first time in that last year that I was at Man City. And as players, you find everyone to blame but yourself. When something goes wrong, it'll always be the chairman's fault. It'll always be the coach's fault. Certain people will always have excuses when things don't go right. So in Ireland, you're a national hero. You're, you're part of Jackie's army. Um, adulation that no, no Irish sports group of sports people can ever have happened before. And club career has turned a corner as well. You move from Arsenal to Man City just before the World Cup in 1990. It's a very different place, though, isn't it? From the, the marble halls, the famous marble halls of Arsenal, the way things are done there to yeah. the way things are done at City. Sure, and um, I would say... Off the pitch, it wasn't as well run as Arsenal. Arsenal had this old Etonian image about how everything was done. You know, you go by the, the doors every day and there's an ex-serviceman dressed in old regalia, you know, regalia letting people in or out. Or, you know, it was all done very, very classical old British style. Whereas Man City, it was, oh, the washing machines are broken. You have to bring your own kit home and wash it today. Mm. You know, um, that kind of stuff. Our training ground was in bits, you know, and we were moving from training ground to training ground. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't great, and, uh, and the team wasn't great. When I joined, we were bottom of the league, you know, with nine games to go. But Howard Kendall was in charge, and he, he had an enthusiasm, particularly on the phone when, I, when he eventually got me, because I'd been out again that night, and he'd left messages for me on an answer machine. I was mortified, because um, the first one was great, I wanted to sign you. The second one was, OK, give me a ring. third one was, it's running late now. Where, and the fourth one was, he was a bit jarred, and, and he says, I think we're going to get on really well together. <laughs> <laughs> so I went up the next day and signed for him, and... Um, he was fantastic. He just made me feel like I was here to do far more than I was doing at Arsenal. And at Arsenal, it was very regimented. George was, was military in, in, in terms of his uh, preparation and the precision that each player had to do for free kicks. I knew I had to do a certain run. For when our goalkeeper got the ball, I had to do certain things. And I was never allowed to come and show and start laying the ball off. Mm. I was never allowed to believe that I could do things you know, with my feet, even though I felt I had good feet. And I started playing head tennis when I went up there, which I'd never done at Arsenal, and, and Howard instigated this. We used to have a game, like, we, when I think about it now, uh, he, he used to play head tennis, and we, he'd play the doctor and the physio, you know, and he'd pick them against, say, me and somebody else. And they'd start 
cheating, you know, and getting, saying points that were in were out, and the doctor and physio were beating you in front of the other players, and then suddenly you'd have to get better at it. And then within four or six weeks, you know, you're hooked, and you're playing an hour before training and an hour after mm. training. All the time, my feet are getting perfect, much better than they ever were. And so, you know, he, he, he was actually getting me to work hard, but not running around, you know, sort of in, in, or in a gym or whatever. It was all... In a way that you enjoyed, understood how to... Loved, like Jack, to get the best out of you. Absolutely, he was getting the best out of me, and he got me to, you know, to... to play differently, to come, show to feet, to do, you know, to do things that I always wanted to do, to take shots and goal rather than think you have to pass it off all the time. And um, I played with Adrian Heath up front for the first year. And Adrian was a very unselfish partner to have. You know, he was always trying to do the right thing to get the chance to score for me or anybody else. And, um, and I benefited from that. I, got, I had, uh, I think, I had 22 goals in my first full year with him, you know, which, was, which with Howard was, was, was sensational. But that that whole sort of um, rush that, that we'd got. We went from being on the bottom of the league when he took over. Uh, we had nine games to go. We finished 14th, but we United finished one spot above us. Right, so that's where both Manchester teams were at that time. And Fergie was coming under increasing pressure that he was going to be sacked. And Howard left. Out of the blue, Howard Kendall left. We were starting to get the, the edge mm. in Manchester. It sounds crazy, but that's what was happening. And Howard left which caused a problem. They gave it to Peter Reid, who came in, who was one of us in our dressing room, was a player. So, so that, that was, was where Man City was. But um, as, as you famously remember, in a, in a cup match, Manchester United's um, players saved Alex's job, Sir Alex Ferguson's job, as he was to become, and they kicked on. And that was a problem, because even though we were going the right way, they jumped. They started winning in Europe. Yeah. You know, and they started winning titles. And we, were, like, we finished fifth two years in a row, uh, once under Howard Kendall at that time and once under Peter Reid. But it was as if we'd finished bottom of the third division because the United engine was purring. It was going, gathering momentum, that whole journey that they were on. And we were where we were. We had a very good team and we weren't that far off. And I can remember uh, Peter Reid coming to me and said, um, we, I might have a brilliant centre forward to play with you. It's going to give us a right chance. Um, I'll let you know more. And nothing happened. And I went, what's the today? I said, no, he's gone to Arsenal. So we, tried, we bid the same money for Ian Wright. Mm. who went from Palace and then went to Arsenal and broke all the records at Arsenal. And Peter Reid thought he was in with a chance of getting them. So little things like that, if they'd gone your way, who knows, we might have been but better. But you, you personally are flying at the moment. Like, you know, you scored 20 goals in uh, first division season. Not only that, like, you're, you, everything you touch turns to gold because one famous game against Derby County, you score a left-footed volley and then you end up going on goals and saving a penalty. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was funny uh, because... Tony Coulton got sent off, and I, I love mucking around in goal anyway. You know, at, at particular times in training, if there's a light-hearted time, 10, 15 minutes, I'll go and go, you know. Always have done. And paying for it now because I have to get my hip done. Yeah. But anyway, um, for that particular time, Tony got sent off. The rules had changed. You know, goalkeepers, his last line defence, if they gave away a penalty, that was the first year they were being sent off. And it was a bit of a shock that he was sent off. But I, I, I got in goal, and, and I can remember as, as Dean Saunders put the ball down for Derby, and Adrian Heath, who was a great pal of mine, and... Uh, He's out in America doing great now, managing out there. But Adrian's there going to him, he'll save this. I'm telling you, he plays that mad Irish game. He's going to save this. <laughs> and Dean Saunders is like, he's a funny lad. Anyway, Dean's going, oh, shut up, will you? And gee, you know, uh, you know he's, he's, he's not a goalkeeper, you know. And, and uh, I'm telling you, he's going to save it. He's going to save it. So anyway, I get my jersey on. And we're actually smiling at each other before he takes it. And yet he does his act. And I just guessed right and I, and I saved it. So, so it was great. And, and two things from that. One, it's not on YouTube or video any, uh, anymore. They show that moment. But the corner kick was my best moment in football. The corner kick was a big, deep cross to the back post. And I came out like I was playing in Croke Park. And Mark Wright, 
and Mick Harford, two of the best headers of the ball in the country. And I came up and kneed the two of them onto the ground and caught it loud and, and strong and landed between and looked at the two of them. <laughs> and, and I spun it out to the full back and I, I think I rubbed the two of them on the head. As well. I no, they were swinging for me at this stage. And uh, that doesn't get shown anymore, so yeah. I haven't seen that. At least that's my memory of it anyway. But then the second thing was no mobile phones, no digital strategies for football clubs. The vote for player of the year that year, there was a piece of paper on every seat or on the terraces you got mm -hmm. handed to as you went in. And that was the day I scored a volley down one end and saved a penalty. <laughs> so who else was going to win it? Like, you know, so you need, you need a lot of luck. And I suffered relegation for the first time in that last year that I was at Man City. And, and having known where we were 18 months mm -hmm. previous and where Man United were and to see where we had where you'd gone to and as players you find everyone to blame but yourself so I'll always remember that because when, when something goes wrong it'll always be the chairman's fault it'll always be the coach's fault the medical wasn't right somebody will always have an excuse or, or certain people will always have excuses when things don't go right um, that was a time just to, to look in the mirror I think for me personally you know I'd, be, I'd had my cruciate I tried to get over the cruciate I was kind of in behind Rosler and Walsh, Paul Walsh and Uwe Rosler. Now I forced my way back in because things weren't going well. They were at the bottom of the league. I, I was hit and miss. And um, Franny Lee had took over the club and he wanted me out. He tried to sell me the year before. Big regret of mine, uh, I think. It's a regret that gets bigger as time goes on, is not signing for Sporting Lisbon. I agreed a deal with Carlos Quiros in Lisbon uh, to play for Sporting Lisbon the summer before. And... Um, Man City changed the goalposts at the last minute. The deal fell through. Carlos Quiros gave me a week to sort it out or else he'd have to get somebody else and I didn't sort it out. I stayed at City. I didn't get a game in the first nine games and they lost them. They played me in the next one and we won it. And there was a false hope there that I'd done the right thing, that I was going to uh, stay in the glory days of come back at City. But by the end of the year, we were relegated. I'd had a bad time. Everybody had a bad time. And um, I got the call then to say a team in, in Selangor uh, in Thailand had agreed a fee with them and I could go and speak to them. And that was, that was the end of my City days. I went to Selangor. Uh, I actually had to play a game for them. I didn't realise I had to and I had to, had to borrow a pair of boots and play a game for them, which was um, unbelievable because we beat Middlesbrough, mm. who'd beaten the national team 9-0 on the Wednesday. But what they didn't know in Thailand was Brian Robson had them on the beer for three days afterwards. So, so it, was, it, was, um, it was a great one. But because that, that, I was a victim of that in some ways because the owner of the club was running for presidential election. He wanted me to be his marquee signing. We just beat Middlesbrough national team. Um, the trophy was bigger than you and I for, for winning that match. And uh, I just wanted to get home. Gillian was pregnant at the time with her first child. My career was all over the place. And um, thankfully, Peter Reid came in. He'd just taken over Sunderland mm. and he got me out of it. I think looking back, I developed septicemia was, was a real problem because I bunked off the club and got my own operation, which was unheard of at the time. You have this image of being the easygoing guy, you know, uh, we, we talked about earlier, you were, you're an optimistic personality and uh, enjoyed life and, um, you know, I think the, the quote from um, your, your hero Jack Doyle in, that you use in your book is that he walked on the sunny side of the street. Mm -hmm. But you experienced real adversity here, you know, you've mentioned you did your cruciate twice and the, fir uh, the first time was an extremely difficult period because of septicemia and you were very sick for a while. Um, Gillian was, was pregnant and, and trying to get you through this. Um, you get back and then you do your cruciate again, you know, signing for Sunderland. You know, you become a Sunderland hero, 
but at the start, I was very bad. It's certainly <laughs> you certainly weren't, you know, yeah. welcomed with open arms by the Sunderland fans. Real adversity. So if Niall Quinn is the easygoing, happy-go-lucky, you know, everything works out for him. You have, you surely have had to have a bit of steel inside you to come through those challenges over yeah. those few years and become what yeah. happened at Sunderland. And again, and I would put it back to the GA upbringing that I had. You know, you get stuck in, and and there's no other answer but to uh, to go back to the to the well and you know go deeper. Um, I think looking back, I developed septicemia was, was a real problem because I bunked off the club and got my own operation, which was unheard of at the time. Um, so I'll tell you that happened. So I, I, I did my cruciate. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was bad. And I was told I had to have an operation and that the club surgeon was going to do it. So I got a call. Kevin Moran rang me. He said, there's someone here who wants to speak to you. And it was a young Alan Shearer, uh, who I didn't know, but it was really good. I mean, he was scoring all these goals, but he'd done his cruciate. He was back. And he said, you've got to go to this man, Mr. Dandy, in Cambridge. Don't listen to your club. I said, well, thanks for that. That's, that's really good of you. So I rang Mr. Dandy, and he said, can you be here in the morning? He said, bring your x-rays. So I had to go into the club and steal my x-rays in the physio's room out of the drawer. I knew where he kept them. And I got a train across the, the Pennines, the Trans-Pennine Express, which brought me down to Cambridge, and I got a, a bus to, to, um, to, to where he, uh, his, his practice was. And he came in he, after he was finished his rounds, doing everything about, about seven o'clock that evening. I went, yeah, very good. Yeah, see the exit. Okay, I'll do it in the morning. Nurse, have him ready. Mm. I had no pajamas. I had nothing. And I had a big decision to make. I was kind of playing with this and just it was something to do. I'll go down and see what this man thinks. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as if I had mobile phone to ring people, let people know. The physio didn't know. The club didn't know. Gillian didn't know. I said, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll wait till uh, later tonight and um, I'll ring Jill and tell her I'm getting it done. And I'll go for it. And that's what I did. Man City were horrified. I rang, when I came through the operation the next day, uh, I rang the physio, Eamon Salmon, great guy. I said, Eamon, you're going to kill me, but I've had my operation. And he went, Niall, you've done all your jokes and tricks. You're not going to fool me. I said, no, Eamon, I have. I've had my operation. I'm in Cambridge. I've done it. He said, you're going to get me the sack. And then I stopped. I'd, I hadn't stopped to think of him. Mm. And I felt really bad. And, and Eamon and my relationship was, was different from then on ever after. But... Um, but Paul Lake had the injury the exact same as me, same time. And Paul didn't do what I did, and Paul didn't make it back. Now, I'm not saying that was the de definitive reason, but, you know, Paul would wish he'd done what I'd done. And that was all very well till a week later when I came back, I started developing pain. My system started to give way, and I went crawling my hands and knees to my physio. I'm in real trouble here. There's something wrong with me because I developed septicemia and I was rushed into hospital and I spent 30 days in hospital. I lost three stone and Gillian, who was heavily pregnant at the time, had to go the, the hour. It was in winter, the middle, all around November. Had to drive an hour every night to bring me stew because I'd only eat her cooking. I wouldn't eat the hospital cooking. Mm. And uh, eventually I come out. The day I come out, I took my pants off. Sorry, I put my pants on um, to go home and it fell straight down. By my, by my shoes, because my waist had gone, everything had gone. I'd lost three stone. And, and to get back playing, um, the, sir, the, the, the man who helped me in my septicemia, Mr. Banks, he was a weightlifter. And he said, come to the gym. And I went to Widdenshaw Gym with him, which is, I wouldn't show a real tough part of Manchester. And every kind of scally that does weights, you could see them in there with you know, the big tattoos and the muscles and the whole lot. And this six foot five rake came in. And to start life off, this is how weak I was, I started on sweeping brushes, just to get the movement going again. And that, that's, that's where I had got to. But once I got started to feel good and come around, he also had me eating liver and kidneys every day, breakfast, dinner, and tea. Gillian can't stand the sight of them now. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and so I really built my bloods back up and, and got, 
got so heavily into weights that I did make it back. Uh, I wanted to play before the end of the season because I wanted to go to the World Cup. Now, Jack Charlton didn't push it with Francis Lee, so that, so that was fine. I didn't get there, yet they made me play the first friendly of the season, which I found strange, which was only about two weeks after the World Cup. But, um, but when I came back, I was, I was now a stone and a half heavier than when I was playing. And I had a neck on me, it's huge. Mm. I was doing the weights. I could hold the ball up against the strongest centre-halves in the world, but I couldn't run. You know, and so I had to redevelop my training and, and then it all started to fall apart anyway. Uh, as I said, we got relegated then the year after I, d I wasn't in the team. And um, when, when, when that happened up at Sunderland, then, you know, I was like, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm nearly ready for the, uh, I'm ready for, for retirement, I suppose, because the... So how, how did the love affair with Sunderland well, fully the, kick in? The, the love affair Sunderland took a while to kick in because I remember driving up, Peter Reid said he'd have me, uh, they agreed a fee with Sunderland and I drove up to, to Sunderland. I'd only ever been there to play a match once before for Arsenal and I didn't know a lot about it. Um, just knew Charlie Hurley, who was a great Irish hero there, that was all I knew. And I drove up there, it was the, the, the old ground, you know, Roker Park, um, literally going in like to a housing estate, the bottom of it on the left is a bit of a, a sort of a offices and shops and in behind is this pitch and you can see the lights when you get there. Um, it's been there over a hundred years and uh, the offices were over a hundred years. So I went in there, this, this place was falling down. Um, they, they were training at a, a different place but they were using the, the dressing rooms and so it was all a bit different to what, you know, to maybe it was like Arsenal was unbelievable. City was getting really good before I left. This was, you know, archaic. But that helped the place as well in many ways. And I headed up to, uh, to that meeting. Not sure what I was going to sign, but in the end I did. And Gillian followed me up not long afterwards. But, you know, I was paraded as the record signing. Um, Peter wanted me to do exactly what I was doing for Man City. We knew exactly what my role was going to be. But... Um, Five games in, I did my cruciate. I got off to a good start. I scored again on my debut. Um, I think I got two against Forest. I scored another one. So about four or five games in, I was on four goals, and I was, I was quite, quite pleased with myself. But I, I did my cruciate then against Coventry. Liam Date, who I played with with Ireland you know, before then, uh, was marking me. It wasn't his fault, but I twisted uh, to turn, and, and my second cruciate was gone. And having just got the first one right now, I had my second one. And back then, it wasn't so easy to get back from one, never mind two. Mm. So... A bit of doubt whether I was going to make it back. So I tried hard to get back, and I came back too early that season. I came back four months and three weeks after my cruciate operation, which I, which I mentioned to a couple of people since, and they went, oh, my God, you, it just wasn't healed. You shouldn't have been doing that. But I came back for the derby, Sunderland-Newcastle, because, um, you know, I felt I could, I could, I could give something to offer. We, we then played Wimbledon on the last game of the season, and we drew. We couldn't beat them, so we ended up going down. Um, but it wasn't right. And then the summer, the pre-season, I worked really hard. And the first few games of the new season, that was when I hit the lowest point. OK, been relegated. We've moved to this new stadium of light. I scored the first goal in it. But I wasn't right, you know. And um, the crowd were getting at me really badly. And uh, I think about five or six games in, I went to Peter Reid and said, enough's enough. I, I can't do this. I think I'm, I'm bunched. I can't play. I'm, I'm hobbling. I can't sprint. I can't kick the ball properly with that leg. Um, this isn't good. So... Uh, Gordon Taylor in the PFA sent me my forms to quit, showed me what my pension would look like, etc. Um, how much I was able to get tax-free if I quit now, and all. I'm then trying to plan very quickly with Gillian, will we go home to Ireland? What will we do? And uh, he arranged, Peter Reid arranged me to see one more man that he heard was, was, was good, give him, go to a Mr Bollin in, uh, in Bradford, by which time Mr Dandy had, had re uh, retired. I went to see Mr Bollin, he said, look, there's, I've had a look, there's something out here that might be causing you trouble, it might be nothing to do with the but I've, I've had a little look at it, see how you go on, go on. Within two weeks, I was perfect. And so I got myself back. But the last game I played before I went to see Mr. Bollin, I came out, I had Ashling um, in my arm, 
going to the car mm. and a Sunderland fan came up and gozzied at me straight in the face and went piss off back to Ireland, you effing whatever. Wow. And, and he, he was one of us, so, you know, so, th so yeah. that's where it was. And then I had, to, I had to, a decision to make, you know, Mr. Bolland's gonna make my knee go, that's great, okay, I'm gonna go for this, I'm gonna show them. And, and sometimes you need that because I was floating, I'd, got to, I'd been relegated at City, feeling sorry for myself. Oh, another cruciate injury, look at me. I didn't realize, you know, I had a wife and two kids, you know, two very, very young kids. Um, I, had, I had nothing planned for the future. And here I was sort of, you know, feeling sorry for myself about it. So that was, I, I made it a, I suppose I made it a mission and, I, and it did become a mission. I went demented for the next years, next two or three years um, of my career, four years of my career. And it worked for me. And I got into a place mentally where I've never been before and I've never been since. Because the day I stopped, it was like I let the air out of it mm -hmm. and I haven't been that, um, that driven in anything I've done since. But um, I can remember it. But it was, to, it was to provide for your family and, for the, and family the alternative of... And, and, win, and to win this lot back, show these people that mm. I, can, I can actually deliver. And, and I was spurred on. But, but just, I'll tell you how driven I was. I can remember bringing the two kids to nursery, forgetting all about it and all the training ground, and getting out of the car and going, Daddy, and I go, oh, Jesus. And, and we were 45 minutes away in the nursery, so I'd bring them in, and the girl, you know, Eileen would be doing the cooking, and I went, Eileen, will you look after them while we're training? And then on the way home, I'd stop and buy them something and say, you can't tell your mother what happened today. You know, and then about five days later, Gillian would say, I was told the kids didn't make it in school last week. You know, and I go, oh, I don't know anything about that. Um, but I was, because I was in the car, not even thinking about them. I said, right, okay, I'm going to train it today. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I got into this place now. Look, I wasn't nice to be around, but I was driven and it worked. And it helps that the other great partnership, obviously behind Gillian in your life, mm -hmm. which is with Kevin Phillips, yeah. starts around them as well. How did that magic happen? How did it yeah. work so well? I think almost 200 goals over six seasons between the, the pair of you. Yeah, That's mad stuff. Yeah, so Kev um, came in the door. We all thought we were getting David Connolly from Watford. That was all in the news. Waterford, Watford strikers come and David Connolly. But it didn't. It turned out it was uh, Kevin Phillips. And we as players kind of going, oh, another cheapie, you know. This club never does it right. You know You know the way you'd be talking amongst each other and you think you know everything. That's what players do. Mm. You know the manager's job, you know the physio's job, you know the chairman's job, you know the press people's job. Oh, that's a wrong one for us. And he came in, but you could see, first training session he was at it. He wasn't overawed. Uh, he wasn't being cocky for the sake of it, because a lot of people do that for the sake of, you know, hiding something. No, he just looked driven and he was determined. And um, very quickly, Peter Reid liked what he saw and put him in the side, put the two of us in against Man City. Um, now, I was to, uh, you know, suffer after that game. For, like, Man City masked my, my poor performances, really, because I scored a goal. Kev got two, I think, and we beat them. Uh, first game in the Stadium of Light, um, but he was off and running then. And he, he, he was a f perfect specimen of a, of a centre forward in as much that, you know, he, is a, he was almost like Aguero in that balance that he had. Uh, Maradona, you know, that low centre mm. gravity where he can shift, but he had a spring, he could head the ball. He could put them in from outside the box, with the curlers from the outside of the foot. He could volley, he could take it around the keeper. He had every goal that you can score was in his locker. And... We just did it every day uh, af afterwards in practice. No matter what training session we did every day, we would do finishing. And Kev Phillips every day was putting in five, ten worldies. And then the poor youth team goalkeeper would get up <laughs> and Kev would tap him on the head and go in and get in his car and go home. So he got himself up and to believe that he could do this. And I came in at the right time and that the way Peter Reid played was geared up 
to either me getting myself a chance or developing something the way we play the, the, the diagonal ball to me most times, that he'd be in and around it if he stayed near us and, and at least give him a chance to do things. Then we developed little things like nicking it around the corner. So if I did show to feet, I'd help it around the corner and I'd know that he was there. Not only that, he'd push his man just before I'd nick it. He'd get three or four yards and he was away. Mm. So little things like that. And we didn't do them on the training ground. We just spoke about them, you know, before a match or, and, and maybe only at five to three. And it started to happen for us. And, this and, chemistry. And more often than not, as I was going for a ball, I knew exactly where he was. Not because I'd looked. It's because I know he knows where this is going. And, and that developed for us over two years, and um, two or three years. And he was, he was just incredible. Like, and again, to, to point it, rather than people think I'm just saying this, and those who might know statistics or whatever, not only did this man win the European Golden Boot, but he did it playing for Sunderland. Mm. Now, I'm not, I'm not being harsh on Sunderland when I say that, but this guy wasn't playing for Real Madrid. He wasn't playing for Bayern Munich. He was playing for Sunderland. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Sunderland people cheer louder for a good old tackle than they do a goal. And that starts to remind me of Kilkenny and Tipperary and Kerry, you know. Um, they're, they're as near, I think, in the northeast to what we would say GAA followers are here. Uh, them staunch GAA people who live for it. Um, but it's... it's it's obviously, it's bigger because it's international and it's, it's the Premier League when we were there. So um, it, it was it learnt a lot for me and it was, it was a big decision to leave it, to come back here, you know, but we always promised ourselves we'd come back. Gillian had done 14 years away from home on her own, raised two kids. Our two kids come back with lovely quaint little English accents. <laughs> um, we could only get a, a Gael Kloster for them because of the, the mm. we hadn't put our names down for school. So um, they've... Uh, They've had to become Irish themselves and, and work that out all for themselves, but we're, we're delighted that, they're, um, that they are, that they've done that, but also that the two of them still follow Sunderland. So it, it, it had a big effect on us. Mick was also an issue. And I don't think people realise this, but as, as the swell went to get Roy back, Mick then said, hang on a minute, I'm the manager. And that was the bit really as, as, that I wasn't ready for. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.